Hello, and welcome to the latest ClearBridge podcast. This is Jeff Schulze, CFA, investment strategist at ClearBridge Investments. ClearBridge is a global equity manager with $154 billion in assets under management, committed to delivering long-term results through authentic active management. ClearBridge tailors their strategies to meet three primary client objectives in our areas of proven expertise, high active share, income solutions, and low volatility. We integrate ESG considerations into our fundamental research process across all strategies. So I'm excited to be here today with Benedict Buckley, a portfolio analyst on the ClearBridge Sustainability Leader Strategy and one of our leading voices in discussing ESG issues across the firm and in public forums, as well as Dimitri Dayan, a senior analyst covering the energy sector and waste industry. Welcome back to the podcast booth, or should I say the virtual booth, as we're conducting this podcast remotely from New York, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania. Welcome, gentlemen. Great. Thanks. Great to be here. Thanks for having us, Jeff. Yeah, this is our first tri-state podcast, hopefully the last, and we can get back to normal work environments uh, sometime over the next couple of months. But the coronavirus represents a new risk for all of us, and we're hopeful all the measures being taken across the country will soon put it safely behind us. And today, we're going to focus on a risk that's been around for decades, but has become front and center over the last few years. And that risk is climate change, also known as global warming. The emission of carbon into the environment from various sources is one of the key issues that we discussed in the 2020 ClearBridge Impact Report, which is being published this April. Now, ClearBridge addresses carbon emissions in multiple ways, which we're going to cover in today's podcast entitled Climate Change and the 2020 Impact Report. As always, we'd love to get your feedback about topics that we cover on our podcast and how we can make them better, so you can contact us with questions, comments, and suggestions by emailing us at podcast at clearbridge.com. So if you've had an opportunity to read the impact report, I got it a little bit ahead of the time. This is the one of the most comprehensive things that we have put out in ClearBridge. Bar none, this is the best impact report that we have put out to date. And we tackle a lot of the big issues. And maybe the most important issue that's facing the world today, and certainly going to face future generations, is climate change. Now, I live here in the Northeast, and this has been one of the mildest winters that I can remember in history. In fact, I think we got, we got uh, snow just one time for about two inches. And you know, last year when I was in Home Depot at the end of the season, I ended up buying a snowblower. It was on sale for 20% off, and it ended up being a terrible purchase because it has just sat in my garage because of how warm of a winter that it's going to be. But this isn't just something that we're seeing in the Northeast, but we're seeing it across broad swaths of the country and the broad swaths around the world. And I think it's something that we need to tackle sooner than later. So obviously, this is going to be something that we're going to be focusing on first and foremost with this podcast. But let's talk about the, the issue at hand here, which is climate change. Climate change and reducing carbon emissions are a couple of the issues that ESG investors have been focused on for years. But the risks can sometimes honestly be a little bit overwhelming and unapproachable. So Ben, maybe how do you start to think about climate change from an investment analysis point of view? Yeah, so let me let me maybe sort of take a step back and just frame frame the challenge. I think you, you know you introduced it in your in your comments, but when we think about climate change, you know, the best available science is suggesting that we need to keep the changing global average temperatures to well below two degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels to have a you know a reasonable chance of avoiding some of the worst impacts of climate change um, involve you know uh, flooding, uh, sea level rise, ocean acidification, other things. And that really we should actually be aiming for one and a half degrees, right? So if you're thinking about what that means for the trajectory of global GHG emissions, 
to get to that one and a half degrees, you'd have to cut emissions by 45% in the next 10 years and be at net zero by 2050. That's obviously extremely challenging. And there's some folks that think that we haven't even, you know, we probably already missed the boat on that one. But regardless, you know, there's some fundamental changes that need to be made to the, to the economy to get even close to that number. And, you know, at whatever level we want to stabilize the concentration of emissions in the atmosphere, we have to reach net zero eventually. So, you know, sometime in the second half of this century, you know, and then sort of at the same time, right, this is, has to be achieved um, alongside other sustainable development goal, which is providing access to affordable clean energy to the whole world's population. So you have these two potentially competing pieces of uh, challenges that we face as a, as a nation, as a, as a globe. But, you know, if you go back to the, the question of how this is being addressed in the investment space, you know, some of these impacts are slow moving and certainly the full impact of rising greenhouse gas emissions will occur over time horizons that are probably outside of any investment strategy. And actually, Mark Carney, at the, uh, who's just the outgoing um, governor of the Bank of England, called this the, sort of the tragedy of the horizon in terms of the, the time frame that these things happen. But actually, at the same time, you're already seeing extreme weather events um, that are often exacerbated by climate change, having impacts on business and communities. And you're certainly seeing changes in market conditions and policies that are designed to move us towards a low-carbon economy. And these are certainly already affecting businesses. So I think that's the, the way that we frame it and the, the way that the, the industry has started to frame it is around these two separate pieces. One is the physical risk of climate change. So that's, like I said, extreme, extreme weather events, droughts, floods, wildfires, and so on that will you know, directly impact businesses you know, through damaging their assets, lost operating days, disrupting supply chains, and so on. Uh, and then there's sort of a bigger bucket, actually, of transition uh, risks and opportunities, which is you know, changes to market dynamics will happen as we try and move towards a lower carbon economy. And those will be driven by policy changes, regulatory changes, you know, technology changes where you have new substitute products that are lower carbon or zero carbon, and then changing you know, consumer preferences as well. And that can be for business to consumer products and business to business products. So the question for us really as long-term active investors is how we, you know, or whether the risks and uncertainties posed by climate change, you know, both the mitigation of it and the adaptation to it will affect the companies that we are investing in. And most importantly, are these impacts being appropriately priced by the market? Now, Dimitri, you know, Ben brought up some pretty important risks, which is the physical risk and the transition risk for climate change. Maybe you can weigh in about uh, a couple of examples that you see in, in your sector um, from these two types of risks. Sure. I mean, the big question we think about at ClearBridge, and especially on the energy side, this sector I cover along with waste, is how will society use energy in the future? What kind of energy will it be? And specifically, how will they use fossil fuel in the future? And what will that demand uh, look like? So if you look at the past five to 10 year time horizon, uh, sort of the recent past, oil and gas demand growth has actually been very strong around the world. Now, this, this year, unfortunately, growth of all kinds will disappoint because of COVID-19. But putting that aside, the demand has been growing very robustly, driven by the world's thirst for cheap energy and more and more people coming into the middle class secularly over time. But when we take a longer term view and we think about decarbonization and what that means for the world and the goals that Ben talked about associated with the Paris Accord and where we need to be by 2050, you have to take a view that over the long haul, 
there'll be regulatory changes, they'll disadvantage fossil fuels, and there's going to be a price on carbon that attempts to move society away from, from preferring fossil fuels and towards more alternatives, or at the very least, minimizing their use of, of, of energy. Carbon price is, the most, is widely agreed to be the most effective way to do that. So we try to incorporate these scenarios into the way we look at, um, at our holdings. And we try to understand whether, wh- whether our investments are robust to these scenarios. Now, as I mentioned, that includes both regulatory changes that could come and likely to come over time, uh, but also consumer fre- preferences. So things like electric vehicle penetration. How would that impact the way people drive and impact the way they consume gasoline? So these are all the things you have to start thinking about. If you look at the Paris Agreement, you look at the carbon goals that society is setting for itself over the next several decades. Um, And within the corporate structure of companies that we look at, yes, it's it's a tragedy of the horizons. It takes a long time from now. But corporations also make decisions that will affect them over many decades. And forward-looking companies are asking themselves the question of how are we going to look in a decarbonized society? What is our role? And how do we see our risks, but also how do we see our opportunities? And you make an interesting point, Dimitri. You know, the net zero targets, you know, it's the UK, France, believe it or not, California, New York are in that program targeting by 2050, um, certainly can have a, a very big impact on reducing emissions. But from a company level, you, you are seeing this happen as well. And it, many companies are moving to a new level of disclosure and analysis of climate risk. ClearBridge is a supporter for the second year, I will say, of the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures. Try saying that three times quickly, but we'll just say the TCFD for short. What exactly is this task force, Ben? Um, maybe you can tell the listeners why it's important and, and how it's informing ClearBridge's climate change reporting. So the, the TCFD actually came out of the, the G20. In uh, 2015, the G20 asked the Financial Stability Board to look at climate risk as a potential risk to um, stability of the global financial system. They actually um, launched a, uh, a program there, and out of that came the TCFD, and they came up with some recommendations for the way that actors in the economy should be reporting on these kinds of risks. The general idea behind this was, you know, to the, all the changes, the long-term changes that Dimitri and I have been talking about, you know, the concern from a st- financial stability perspective was that some of these issues would not be appropriately priced in early enough. And then when people realize the severity of climate change risks, that you'd see an abrupt repricing of assets uh, that could destabilize the financial system. So the idea really is to sort of have a soft landing, if you like. And they are trying to look at disclosure and reporting by companies and other actors in, in the financial economy to, to mitigate that risk over time and to el- enable that to be priced in gradually. So they're looking at you know, some of the key climate or key sectors that will be affected by climate change. So energy, which is what Dimitri covers, transportation, materials and buildings, and then food and agriculture as well, are the key ones. But then they're also looking at financial actors as well. So the lenders, so the banks, the underwriters, so the insurance companies, and then investors. So that's folks like Clearbridge for asset managers, as well as you know, asset owners, which are our clients like pension funds. All of them, they want to be disclosing on how they're each thinking about this risk within their own, their own operations and their own analysis 
to ensure that all all actors in the uh, industry are taking account of these of, of these risks. From Clearbridge's perspective, I think that you know when we've you know as you said reported in line with TCFD and the impact report this year, and really the sort of the two key climate change risks and opportunities I would say we face. One really relates to investment performance, so that's really you know the the bread and butter for any active manager is is investment performance and doing the kind of analysis that Dimitri was talking about to make sure that we are investing in companies that will be successful for the long term, so that we're you know performing for our clients. Um, and then the second part is also around client preferences. So, and we've seen this already happening to us, which is more and more questions from clients and potential clients about how we're factoring climate change into our own analysis, how we're engaging with the companies on climate change risk and so on. Um, and I would say, you know, reporting climate change isn't new you know, with the TCFD. There's things like the Carbon Disclosure Project, which have existed for a while now. But I think what is different about the TCFD is A, sort of where it's the perspective it's coming from, from a financial stability perspective, but also what they do in their analysis or in their recommendations, I should say, is they have an emphasis on assessing business model resilience to different emissions reduction pathways. So they're recommending scenario analysis to help you know, try and sort of stress test, if you like, their business, the business models of these, these businesses to understand how resilient they are to different levels of climate change action. And I think that's sort of uh, an interesting move forward from previous climate change reporting that was more focused on sort of your own operations, and maybe your, you know, your direct emissions, which is important. But when you're thinking long term and thinking ahead is is more important when you're thinking about the resilience of the whole system. You, you mentioned a term there that I, I find very interesting, which is scenario analysis. And it's a, a key component and a new emphasis of the TCFD. Obviously, we were using that uh, at, here at ClearBridge. Maybe you can give us a high level picture of how the fundamental analysts are incorporating it into their company research. Yeah, so like I said, it's really a you know it's a stress testing exercise, if you like, and I think that you know, scenario analysis is something that you know as fundamental analysts we're doing all the time, not just for climate change, but anytime we're looking at companies, we're looking at different you know attempts to forecast what's going to happen in the future and framing that around different potential potential scenarios. So that you know the concept is very familiar to us. Applying it specifically to climate change, I think, is a little bit newer. But it's really, like I said, understanding sort of how each business will respond to emissions reduction pathways. Some sectors, you know, like Dimitri was talking about, have some some pretty big questions to to ask around energy transitions and so on. But it really is, uh, we find, sector specific because it's very hard to make blanket statements about about climate change scenarios across sectors. So each sector will have different challenges and different abilities to change. So you see, you know, in in auto space, for example, you have technology disruption. So you have the EV, you know, electric vehicles that are disrupting the the internal combustion engine vehicles there. And that's the, the question about the speed of that adoption and disruption is really, really something that's changing fast there. And you also have, you know, changing regulations in that space as well. So, you know, the EU is implementing some pretty stringent emissions um, limits on the, the auto companies there, which will, you know, probably cause them to incur some additional costs to, to achieve those or, you know, be subject to some pretty significant fines. But then there's other sectors that, you know, there really aren't substitutes for their products at the moment. So if you think about steel and cement, right, these, are, these are extremely important materials for, for the global economy. 
Certainly when you think about some of the other sustainable development goals around infrastructure and so on, these are absolutely key, especially to a growing population. But the, the dynamics are different there. So really for that industry, it's about um, the industry itself finding new ways to get to net zero over time. Or maybe there will be some substitute products in the, in the future, but they're you know, not commercially available yet. And then I think, you know, Dimitri can probably speak to how he thinks about scenario analysis within the, within the oil and gas space. Yeah, thanks, Ben. You know, as Ben's just mentioned, we did have to develop new models and adapt to scenario analysis in, in, a, in a carbon world, in the climate change world. One thing that several of us have done internally is develop a model looking at electric vehicle penetration globally and how we think that's going to impact demand for both oil and gas, oil negatively and natural gas potentially quite positively. But if I think about it in an oil, in an oil demand model, Demand has been very robust. It's been especially robust in the last five years, driven by low commodity prices. But if we look at our EV model over time, we should see a slowdown in that growth and potentially see demand peaking at some point over the next 10 to 15 years. I mean, timeline is not clear. We're not going to try to put a stake in the ground in any one year. We've actually been somewhat disappointed by the rate of EV penetration over the past 18 months. But if we look out long enough, and this technology will be advantaged through carbon pricing, through regulation, you have to believe that we will see um, a slowing down in, in, in hydrocarbon demand. However, it's going to be gradual. It's going to take a long time. If we look at the intergovernmental panel on climate change scenarios that, that they put out there, and that's the body of the United Nations that writes uh, reports on climate change, the so it, it it does become sort of best accepted science. None of those scenarios suggest that fossil fuels are going to cease to exist any time over the next 30 to 40 years. And when you think about oil and gas, they're naturally declining commodities. So that means that if you don't invest money into them, or if you don't invest enough money into them, the supply of oil and gas will just naturally decline as the pressure in the reservoir falls. So if you take oil, for example, if investment in oil went to zero tomorrow, 12 months from then, you'll have 6% less oil in the world. And when you think about demand still growing and eventually likely peaking, but slowing down at, you know, un unclear, but likely not too quick of a pace, trillions of dollars still need to be invested um, in traditional fossil fuels over the next 30 years. Hence, oil and gas prices likely need to stay at a high enough level to incentivize that investment. However, and this is where a lot of scenario analysis does come in, is depending on the shape of that demand curve, not all oil, oil and gas producers will be able to, to make money. Not all oil and gas assets will remain in the money in that world. Assets really high up on the cost curve could be stranded and potentially never developed. However, you have assets that are at the very low end of the cost curve that don't require high, high capital, high development costs. They're likely to take share from the assets at the very high end of the cost curve and remain profitable even as we move through that, that type of an environment. When we think about our investments within ClearBridge, we're very strictly focused on staying at the bottom of the cost curve so that even through the majority of these climate change and energy transition scenarios, the the hydrocarbons that are going to be supplied are going to be supplied at the low end of the cost curve, and that's where we want to have our exposure. 
I wanted to come back to, to Dimitri here for a second on the oil and gas companies that you cover. How do you discuss GHG emissions from their operations and assess maybe the operational risks that are associated with those emissions? I know that's, that's a, a pretty big issue in regards to climate change. Sure. Uh, of course it is. And for uh, E&P specifically, I'd highlight that we pay very close attention to both methane emissions and gas flaring. And methane, for those listening, it's a very potent greenhouse gas. It's 25 times more potent than, uh, than CO2. There's significant flaring, significant methane emissions going on in oil and gas fields around the world. And from our point of view, there is no excuse to be a major flarer. It's both wasteful, because it is a resource that you pay to develop, and it's best for the environment. But at the same time, if we take a stance, as I mentioned in the prior questions, that there's going to be a price on carbon at some point in the future, then the large emitters will also be at a cost disadvantage relative to the rest of the industry because it'll be a cost associated with carrying out that activity. So far, and especially in the United States, it's been fairly costless to both flare and emit methane, but that world likely won't last. As costs are introduced, as regulations are introduced, there's going to be a financial impact um, to those companies, which will disadvantage them in the marketplace from reducing from the standpoint of margin reduction and free cash flow reduction. And so we want to be in front of that issue today. And the companies that we analyze, that we send through our investment process, also have to um, show either a path to significantly curbing emissions or already be very low uh, on the very low end of that curve and be one of the, one of the least emitting companies in the industry. On the service side, oil service side, it's actually quite interesting because those companies, aren't, they don't actually own oil and gas resources. They're essentially service providers, they're technology companies, they're logistical companies, but they also have a role to play. In the carbon-priced world, it's not just going to be the energy producers that bear the burden, it's going to be everybody. And so in the, in the impact report, we discussed an example of Schlumberger. It's a technology company, really. But they have now come out and become the first service pr- provider to commit to coming up with science-based targets, which will uh, reduce their carbon emissions over the next decade, um, potentially more than that, towards these science-based targets, which is an initiative that assigns sections of the carbon budget proportionally to specific industries that fits them into the Paris framework. So just because you don't own resources and you're in some other industry or you're in a different part of the energy supply chain or you're in another industry doesn't mean that there is not a role for you to play and a way for you to drive down the costs over time as regulations and carbon pricing come into the equation. Now, those are the risks. But I think it's also uh, important to talk about opportunities. Most of the scenarios outlined by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change for 2050 show that 100% of carbon emissions just cannot be eliminated. We still have buildings, we'll still have plastics, we'll still have things that need fossil fuel and need traditional energy to run the world. So we will, I, we will need to fully decarbonize either through taking CO2 out of energies and out of fossil fuels or by removing legacy carbon that's already been emitted in the atmosphere as an offset. And oil majors, I think, have an important, uh, important role to play in this. And they're working to invest in technologies such as carbon capture and storage, CCS, 
but also direct carbon capture and storage, DCCS. CCS meaning decarbonizing current emissions and DCCS is uh, ripping, effectively ripping CO2 out of the sky that's already been already there. There's a lot of investment going into this, but a lot more is going to be needed. When we talk about companies like Occidental, Chevron, Exxon, as well as entities controlled by Bill Gates as leaders in, in funding of this, of this research. So ultimately, we'll need to end up with a high enough carbon price to support this technology. And as I mentioned, IPCC is showing somewhere between 25 and 30% of all CO2 emissions need to be mitigated through some type of a CCS or offset or removal process. As you introduce the price of carbon and being high enough, when you think about it, carbon will become a commodity. And managing that commodity or removing it from the atmosphere, decarbonizing, will become a business. And so over the next 30 years, can big oil transition to big carbon? That's going to be an interesting question that we look at. Yeah, Dimitri, I, I, I love the, the examples that you gave there uh, and the carbon capture and storage, who's likely going to be players in that space over the next 10 or 20 years. Ben, maybe you can share a couple of examples that you're looking at on companies that have climate mitigation technologies that you're looking at and the sustainability leaders strategy. Maybe uh, an example or two. You know, from the sustainability leaders fund perspective, you know, we do own a number of businesses that are focused on reducing carbon emissions in one way or another. So we own a few companies in the renewable energy value chain. So a couple of solar inverter manufacturers, wind turbine manufacturer, a couple of um, independent power producers that generate electricity from you know, solar and wind and hydro and geothermal. Those are sort of all, I would say, sort of fairly obvious from a climate change perspective in terms of the theme. But obviously, you know, it's, it's, while they're clearly sort of opportunities in that space from a lo- you know, transition to a low-carbon economy, the speed of that transition, the sort of competitive environment that they're in is extremely uncertain. It's, it's such a new industry and growing fast. So, you know, that creates significant um, you know, challenges and due diligence needed in, in sort of valuing those companies and picking the ones that we think are the ones that are best placed to be successful. But I think there's an, then some sort of maybe less obvious um, companies that we have in the portfolio that are also enabling carbon reduction. So one I just mentioned is um, Autodesk. So that's a, a software company. They provide design software for designing buildings and, and other uh, products. So they, you know, their end markets are architecture, engineering, construction, and uh, manufacturing as well. And if you think about you know, the built environment and buildings and the construction of buildings is responsible for over a third of um, global final energy consumption and nearly 40% of direct and indirect CO2 emissions. So it's a huge part of this, this challenge. And even small changes in the way those buildings are designed can have huge impacts on the, you know, the, the energy use of that building over time. And the same applies for the ability that Autodesk is putting into its uh, manufacturing software. So they've actually, they're using uh, what they call generative design, which is actually sort of artificial intelligence that can actually come up with hundreds or thousands of prototype designs for a particular product that will optimize far better than a human could the the, the, the trade-offs between you know it being a light being light but very strong and, and durable and so on and that's in pretty early days but one example that directly addresses the climate change issue is uh, so Airbus used it to actually create like one of the partitions that's on its airplanes and it looks like a very sort of organic design but it was actually 45 percent lighter but still actually stronger than the original design 
And if you think about the, you know, weight on a plane is a huge factor in reducing emissions. So actually, you know, implementing this on every plane would save you 166 metric tons of CO2 per plane per year. And if you're rolling that out across all your fleet, that's pretty significant savings. And that's just from one individual product. So I think there's some pretty interesting pieces um, that, you know, they're enabling there. And I think that, you know, one other thing I wanted to mention just quickly on the on the um, the renewable energy side is that while obviously they have opportunities from the the transition risks, uh, sorry, the transition to a low carbon economy, they're also not immune from the physical risks. So one of the companies that we own is uh, Brookfield Renewable Partners, and they own and operate a number of um, so hydroelectric facilities and also some wind and solar assets. And we've been talking to them about you know how they're thinking about climate change impacts on the hydrology for the, uh, the, the river basins that they're in and how that's going to impact the flow of water and so on. It's something that they are you know, spending a lot of time looking at and the changes of the variability of the water flow, potentially higher increases in erosion and flooding and so on. So it's something that they are you know, having to put more into things like dam safety and so on to ensure that they are sort of um, resilient to those, those physical risks that really can be faced by any, com- any company. One of the, the probably the most asked questions that I'm sure both of you get uh, when talking with investors is how can oil and gas companies be a part of ESG or be you know socially responsible? And I, I honestly think that the big difference comes between the definitions of ESG and socially responsible investing, better known as SRI. That socially responsible investing uses screens and exclusions of entire sectors like fossil fuels. And I think this is the new kind of road for ESG and it's a, a change of thinking. So maybe Dimitri... Maybe you can walk us through how ESG integration causes us to target best-in-class EMPs and service companies like Pioneer Natural Resources. Sure, Jeff. And it's very, it's very similar to, to what you said. We don't take an exclusionary point of view to any industry. To us, exclusion means disengagement. And disengagement means you've let, you've let everybody off the hook. We think that you can move the ball forward and you can make an impact both on society from the ESG standpoint and climate change standpoint, but also achieve better financial outcomes for the companies by engaging with them and bringing these issues to the fore. Now, we look at things, as I mentioned in this podcast, like cost curve, oil versus gas exposure, methane emissions, flaring, resource conservation of various types, such as water, but also things like safety culture, how do companies respond to a crisis, what kind of governance practices they put in place. These are all ESG and climate change considerations, but they're also just running the business well considerations. And we don't separate, we don't, we don't set them in different buckets and treat them very differently. We, we integrate them into one th- a fundamental approach and analysis of the company and thinking about how are these things aligned, aligning with the interests of the shareholders. And so what we've noticed is the companies such as Pioneer who are, Leaders on these ESG criteria that we talked about, governance, flaring, being low on the cost curve, they also tend to be good businesses from the traditional financial metric point of view. And we're seeing how their resource conservation also lowered their investment risks and improved their margins of selling oil and gas. All right. Well, last question that I have for you. What are the issues related to climate change that you're watching most closely today? Dimitri, maybe I'll start off with you on some some final thoughts and weigh in on that particular topic. Sure. 
Well, we mentioned EV penetration. I think it's a very important issue to be uh, to be looking at Vermont very closely. As I mentioned, last few years we've been disappointed by the pace of penetration, but that that's something that we continue to monitor all the time. And uh, CCS, carbon capture storage, direct carbon capture storage. Technology hasn't matured yet, but capital is going into it. There's R&D investment going in. It's going to be a very important technology going forward. And how it develops could really determine who are the winners for the next 30 to 40 years. And that's where we're spending a lot of our, a lot of our energy. Ben? Right. So for, from my perspective, maybe I'll, I'll throw in two. So I think from the sort of Going back to the TCFD and the, the climate scenario piece, um, you know, that's an evolving space in of itself. Uh, and you know, I think we'll continue to evolve our thinking around best practices around how we do that and report on it. For example, so we're going to be actually road testing a scenario analysis tool from a third party called the Two Degrees Investing Initiative. We've already been using their existing tool, which is called PACTA. And we've been using their sort of version one, and we're going to be road testing their version two, which is coming out, I think, in, uh, in May. Hopefully, that will give us some, some more insight into the sort of climate change risks in our own portfolio, and then also allow us to provide some feedback to them to improve the tools for, you know, for the whole industry. But then in terms of sort of uh, broader issues that we're looking at, I think you know, one of the, the questions, again, it's a sort of penetration adoption question, but it's also around solar and wind penetration into the electricity market. So, you know, we've seen very fast growth of, of solar and wind in many places. And I think that, you know, we see, hear a lot about the, the, the cost competitiveness of these technologies. I think one of the challenges that we're seeing at the moment is that managing the intermittency of those, of those resources without yet having affordable long-term storage options, I think, is a challenge and how the utilities are able to, to manage the grids with higher penetration of solar and wind is something that we're watching very closely. Well, great. Uh, ben, Dimitri, thank you so much for, for the time today. And thank you for joining me on the first ever virtual podcast. Thanks for having us. Thanks, guys. Stay safe. And uh, thanks, everybody, for tuning in. I, I really do encourage you to check out the 2020 impact report that's going to be available on ClearBridge's website here in April. Other sector spotlights that we're going to dive into are utilities, autos, real estate. It's a 60-page, over 60-page document that has a lot of good content on how we're thinking about ESG investing and, and, and uh, climate change specifically. So thanks again for, for dialing in. Hope everybody has a safe, healthy, and healthy rest of the month. And again, we welcome any questions, comments, and suggestions that you may have. You can email us at podcast at clearbridge.com. Thank you for joining. Please note the following. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. The opinions and views expressed in today's podcast are of the individual speakers as of March 30th, 2020, and may differ from other managers or the firm as a whole and are not intended to be a forecast of future events, a guarantee of future results, or investment advice. Any statistics reference have been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but the accuracy and completeness of this information cannot be guaranteed. Neither ClearBridge Investments nor its information providers are responsible for any damages or losses arising from any use of this information.